Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week is another big one for me, and I know you guys like hearing from producers. This is a mega producer. We are talking to youth. Yes, youth. (laughs) Now, youth, as you probably know, started out as the bass player for Killing Joke, one of the most pioneering doom hard rock metal bands ever. He plays on their first three albums. That's why you're listening to Follow the Leaders from their second album right here. Great tune. And he, But he leaves and he, he becomes like a massively influential producer and DJ. Dance music is all starting to happen and it's largely being influenced by the things he is doing. His influence on dub and trance and uh, jungle and all those different forms of dance music at that time. He forms the orb. These are major, major innovations and major influ- majorly influential acts in dance music at that time. And then dance music becomes the norm in the 90s, and it's largely thanks to him. So in the early 90s, he goes on to be a very well sought, a- sought out producer. He works with Crowded House. He tells us a story in here about recording songs naked and doing drums, doing drugs with the guys. Incredible. He produces The Verve, Urban Hymns. That's one of my favorite albums ever. Bittersweet Symphony is on that thing. He works with James. He works with Echo and the Buddy Men. He works, he does that project, The Fireman, with uh, Paul McCartney. If you don't know, Paul McCartney has like three techno albums that he did when partnered up with Youth called The Fireman. Uh, he works with Pink Floyd. He works with U2. We talk about all this stuff. Now, I mean, he is a hugely influential person in my life when it comes to music. I love everything he's done, just about. And uh, so he calls me from his home in southern Spain. But let me tell you, his home is also one of the most tricked out studios in all of Europe. It's called Space Mountain. So anyway, this is youth calling from his home studio, also known as Space Mountain, tricked out one of the greatest studios in Europe in southern Spain. Okay, so uh, for starters, I guess I should ask: Do you do I call you youth or do I call you Martin? Yeah, youth. youth. Okay, yeah. good youth. Yeah. Okay, youth. So, what uh, are the thing the thing that sparked all of this? The recent project that you have that really caught my eye is this uh, collaboration with Dr. Robert from the Blow Monkeys. Get yourself yeah. together is this great new song. Tired of waves breaking in the 
you two are not two people I would have ever thought to put together, but I'm guessing the fact that you both live in southern Spain had something to do with this. Tell me about it. Well, yeah, he's actually a neighbor. Uh, he's up the end of my track, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've been here 20 years. I've known Robert maybe 10, 15 years. Mm. And yeah, he's definitely from a different genre of music. Ironically, I came here to get away from the music biz and then found him living up the trap. I think I've, I've actually got a very broad spectrum of musical taste. Obviously, yeah. When you look at your resume, uh, that's true. Yeah, and so does Robert, but it's a little more narrow than mine. Mm. <laughs> and a lot of those sort of indie soul rockers are like that in, in the 90s and 80s. Mm -hmm. So I think he, he certainly doesn't listen to anything killing joke or anything like that. <laughs> but we we kind of got on quite well as friends and then we found myself in lockdown and he very kindly offered to go up the supermarket for me mm. i was totally capable of doing but because he'd offered i asked him to get me some seeds which he did and then when he came <laughs> back with them i was like oh that's very kind and uh i said let's do a lockdown record mm. and i thought okay well He's in that classic tradition of sort of blue-eyed soul, really, I think. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. So I thought, okay, I'm quite into, uh, you know, I love soul music. I'm not known for making it, but I, I, you know, I love it. It's an influence. And I'm quite into the whole Thundercat phenomena in America and mm -hmm. Flying Lotus and Kamasi Washington. And I thought, well, okay, I could do a track like that and see how he'd tackle that. So I put this track together and immediately he had a, a vibe on it. Mm -hmm. And he's a very experienced writer and uh, he's a great writer. I mean, he's written mm -hmm. songs for Curtis Mayfield and stuff. Sure. So, yeah. You know, so it was, it was a real pleasure to do it. He did the vocal at his house, sent it back to me. I did some editing, sent it off to my engineer in, in London and he mixed the whole thing up. I'd done all the music here. It was one of the first things I did actually. And, it was a bit of a challenge getting my engineer chops up to speed because mm -hmm. normally I work with engineers and, uh, and a team of people, but I really enjoyed making it. And uh, yeah, it was great. And uh, I've been doing some other sort of breakbeat, sort of rare groove centered tunes in lockdown. And, you know, hopefully it may, you know, it may turn into an album, but I think he's already kind of working on the new, Blow Monkeys album now. Yeah, he might be. So, but yeah. uh, who knows where it will lead. Okay. Well, I just thought that was really special. I see an announcement that two of my favorites are coming together, and I never would have guessed. Well, but, that's uh, very kind of you. Thanks. Yeah, sure. I love it. It's fun to do. And it's such Especially a funky, yeah. good song. I love wow. it. Ooh. Your cat. Cat. Cat's called Mr. Wilson. Hey, Mr. Um, Wilson. <laughs> he's generally very friendly, but he, he, he's a, he was a wild cat that I kind of befriended in lockdown, and he's now become my no. house studio cat. I see. And okay. he's, uh, yeah, he's quite a personality. <laughs> I named him after the uh, character in the Castaway movie. Um, <laughs> the volleyball. <laughs> that's it, yeah. <laughs> That's great. And, and that and he actually provided me with the same kind of psychotherapy su support having a companion yeah but yeah he saved my bacon genius 
Genius, I love it. Are you are you single and living there by yourself? I am. I'm normally based in London. I've just uh -huh. come back from London, and I come out here a few months a year recording bands and chilling out. But mm -hmm. I was here recording Peter Murphy before lockdown and Ooh. went back to London for a week, and I could tell lockdown was coming, and I thought, oh, I'm not going to stay in London. Yeah. I came straight back here. And so I've been here since February now. Okay. Okay. Um, so I'm pretty much basing myself here now. It's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I was watching, to get ready to talk to you, I was watching a video clip of an interview you did and interspersed were images of Space Mountain. Your, oh, yeah. Your, uh, and it looked like just the most incredible piece of heaven up there. That's, the, uh, yeah. that's where you live. That's where you're based, that's right. right? Yes. That's right. It is amazing here. We've got hot springs up the road. We're in the mountains. But we're only, it's only a half hour drive to the beach, half hour oh. drive to Granada, which is a beautiful city. Yeah. But today I went uh, climbing waterfalls, wow. which is in the same valley as me. Um, it was a good 20 minute hike through this sort of jungle. And then you come out and this dip in the river and there's this 100 meter waterfall. Wow. Just an, an incredible corner of Eden here. Yeah. Um, and nature is very fierce and omnipresent. Mm -hmm. And it's very much so at the moment. It's like 45 degrees here. It's pretty wow. extreme. But, you know, even though it gets cold in winter, it's, you still get a lot of sunshine here. It's like 300 days of sunshine. Goodness. I spent 20 years working in basement studios. So <laughs> right. at the end of that, I was looking for somewhere to buy or build. Yeah, um, where yourself. I had a bit more light, and that yeah. was it. Yeah. But I still ended up based in London and spending most of my time there. But like I said, through lockdown, I've kind of mm -hmm. made that move. And, but also, I travel a lot. I'm, a t I'm touring with Killing Joke a couple of months a year. I'm spending a couple of months a year in Jamaica recording old Jamaican reggae artists. Wow. At a studio I set up there about five years ago. Um, and you know, I love travel. I did a tour of Africa last year, DJing and recording. Mm. So I love traveling, but I still need a port to anchor in. I need that anchor. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. this has been my anchor for twenty years. But I've got a great space in London as well. But London's London, you know. So yeah, yeah. this is where I come to as a, a way to get away from it all. You and find, find Dr. Robert <laughs> All the better. Do you find, I'm curious, yeah. when I was watching, uh, when I'm hearing about all these amazing studios you've got to work out of, do you find in today's music business, is there as much of a need for a tricked out, beautiful, all, you know, everything you could ask for a studio like there used to be? Not at all, not at all. The demand has gone right down. And... You know, I mean, I, I, I do a lot of work on the laptop I'm talking to you. Yeah. You know, there's more power in this laptop than there was in Olympic Studios in the 90s, you know, yeah. mm -hmm. in terms of, what you know, sound processing tools. Um, nevertheless, when I built this studio 20 years ago, it was modeled on um, the Toroshima designs of the refurbed Olympic from the 80s. Um, which is still like the best rooms in the world, I think. And uh, I had the same builder, Terry Otley, as Olympic builder. Yeah. And the studio manager at Olympic, this is around 2000, 
She said, you know, all the studios are shutting down. This isn't a good time to build a studio. <laughs> I said, yeah, but, you know, I still i am going to need a studio. And so it was kind of like I had the last baton passed to me from Olympic for yeah. this place in terms of the old traditional studios. And, and sure, there is no, such a big demand, but I still need to use it, you know, three or four times a year for different live bands I'm working with. So it's me a fortune having to book expensive yeah. studios in London or residentials. And it's tragic, really. I mean, in London alone, there are over 400 commercial studios 20 years ago. Now there's under 40. Oof. So, I mean, that's just the tide has come in and wiped that out. Yeah. But people are still building and making studios work. Mm -hmm. When I was touring America last year, I found quite a few little studios that have been built in the last five years. Interesting. And they were making it work. You yeah. Know? So... People still need to make records. Even though you can do a lot of it at home on a laptop with a mic, there's a certain point you kind of want to go into to a real studio, I think. Yeah. Just yeah. if nothing else, to have a creative space. But, yeah. you know, it's an expensive creative space, but for some people it's necessary. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, they find using tape exotic and, you know, I don't actually do use tape here, but, you know, it's... Uh, you know, it's an experience, isn't it? You know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think. Okay, let's, uh, I want, I actually saw you guys Killing Joke in concert last year when you came through Denver for the first time. But I'm going to save that for later because I want to get into some of your production credits. Right. The first of which is uh, probably one of the first ones you did, which was, uh, which was Crowded Houses Together Alone. I was standing on a way when I made the drop I was lying in a cave In the solid rock I was feeling pretty brave Till the lights went off Sleep, I know this comes too soon Crowded House is my favorite band of all time, and I'm wearing my Crowded House T-shirt to commemorate this oh, moment. Wow. And uh, well, I was I, talking about Crowded House today, actually. You what? I was talking about Crowded House today, making that record with some uh, friends that I went to the waterfall with. Because when we were making that album with Crowded House, we were in New Zealand, and we were by this black sand beach, but there was a waterfall. And I suggested, I was spending a lot of time in India then, and I was taking a lot of LSD. Mm -hmm. I suggested we all took some acid and climbed this waterfall. 
And everyone in the band was out for it, except for me, except for the drummer, Paul. Oh, Paul. And Paul did have mental health issues, and he ended up taking his life and hanging yeah. himself, didn't he? he did. you know? mm -hmm. So it's probably good he didn't take acid that day. But it wasn't, there's was a bit of a glitch in the, a spoke in the wheel. That same day, as we, and Neil was like so good on LSD. I mean, he said, Oh, he, we walked over to the water, he goes, Let's climb it. I said, like, it's 200 foot now, and we're tripping. And he goes, no, it's great. I said, how are you finding the acid? He goes, oh, it's like wearing an old favorite jacket. And he was so comfortable with it. And then we ended up racing up this waterfall. It was brilliant. And we got back to the studio, started cutting a track. And we had this long drive up to the studio, so you could see anyone coming from a mile away. And uh, I saw this car approaching, and I said, wow, look, there's a car coming. Because it was very rare that anyone uh -huh. would visit. And Neil goes, oh, that's probably the uh, A&R guy from LA, Capsule Records, turning up. He's due any day now. I was like, oh, really? I said, well, look, just keep playing. I'll keep him sweet. <laughs> and so he turned up, Matt, and I, I said, listen, we've taken LSD, we're all jamming. And he goes, wow. He said, got any more? I went, yeah. <laughs> and so he was all the time like, the drummer wasn't happy though. Paul afterwards complained to the A and R guy that I wasn't being professional as a producer because mm. I encouraged everyone to take LSD. Well, whatever but, it takes uh, to get that album, because that album is the best. No, yeah, it worked out great. But actually, I've been producing, you know, since I was seventeen. Good. I know. I'm thinking of more you commercial know. albums. You know, that, yeah, that, that was my that. first mainstream uh, commission from yeah. a rock group. Uh, and I was, I was really in awe that they picked me. They only picked me because I was the least like a professional producer they've met. Is that why? They, I've always wondered. That was, there's a nice YouTube documentary on the making I of it. I saw that. Uh, and there's a, there's a quote from Nick in the back of a car going to the studio saying, yeah, we only picked Youth because he was the least like any producer we've met. <laughs> and we, we kind of like that. Uh -huh. <laughs> like, but it was uh, it was it was brave of them, and yeah. um, I think Neil's a bit disappointed. I didn't want to go more beats orientated and program stuff. Because when really? he after that album, he did a few solo albums with one of the ex Blow Monkeys, actually the yeah. keyboard player who became a big producer and did La La Land, and uh, yeah, uh, and I worked with him in the nineties as a as a programmer on remixes I was doing. Um, huh. But anyway, did a couple of solo albums with him, and they were all totally beats orientated. Uh -huh. But I didn't think they were that good, actually. Those albums. I prefer the Crowded House albums. Yeah, you're right. Um, I mean, I I love Neil so much. I'll do anything. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'll listen to anything. Uh, I said to Neil, look, what I want to make is a classic, timeless record. Mm -hmm. I don't want too many gimmicks. But we were experimenting on that album. But um, I think we achieved it. It's a classic album. It, it is. Really I have to hear the story of recording Locked Out Naked and something about Neil hurting his, uh, his nuts. Yeah.
Well, that's right. Neil was playing a, a Telecaster, which is on the reverse side. It's got those coiled springs to give the neck tension. And he, they, he went for a big Bruce Springsteen power cord and got his pubes caught in the, in the, in the guitar. And then yelps out this heart-wrenching scream. <laughs> but it was a challenge I presented to them. And like great Kiwis, they're always up for a challenge, you know. <laughs> they're always trying to overachieve because they feel they've got more to work up to or something. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, and I, had to, I had to do it naked as well. But we got a few takes and, uh, yeah, I mean, one of them made the cut, yeah. That's great. But there was um, Susanna Hofstede, Eternal okay. Flame. She, she sang that naked. Did she really? She done it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It does I'll change never, the dynamic a bit. Yeah, I'll never listen to Locked Out the same way again. So <laughs> let me ask you a question about that album because uh, I love that album a lot. And one of my favorite things about it are there's a lot of kind of percussive flourishes in that album, I guess, that you wouldn't... Oh, the Kip Island drummers and the Maori yeah. drummers. Like, yeah. for instance, yeah. um, there's the end of the title song, Together Alone. And then there's also yeah. Catherine Wheel, which is that and yeah, Carrie yeah. Carey are my two favorite songs in the album. Whose yeah, idea is that? Is the... that you? Is that them? Do they? Where does that come from? I... A lot of the arrangements I was doing were quite psychedelic, and so you know, quite a few of the songs that in the end Neil decided to cut the outros. Mm. A lot of them would veer off into this other jam uh -huh. uh, and another song sometimes, like like Catherine Wheels and. She's gone, vanished in the night, broke off the logic of life. He woke, tore the covers back, found he was empty inside. So they were told, when the moon would rise, the best time to leave with your soul. Up towards the lights, watching her whole life unfold. Oh, bruises come up dark. Mm -hmm. 
Beatles. I was thinking Beatles, you mm. know, um, actually, and that's usually a good reference for Crowded House. I, yeah, it is. So when I was working with Paul McCartney and I, I told him I'd just done Crowded House, he was like, he's going, oh, bloody copyists. Why can't <laughs> they do their own thing? Oh. And then, he, and then he said the same thing about Oasis, that we were just oh. coming up. I said, they're just big fans, you know, yeah, and he's yeah. like, why can't they do their own? He's not like that now. He's like, hello, Oasis, they're great, you know. Yeah, yeah. But at the time, he wasn't that happy about it. Oh, man. You think, you think you take it as a compliment. When Nirvana ripped off Killing Joke, I was like, hey, that's cool. But he wasn't like that. But I was doing a lot of Beatle references because they are so Beatle, especially with the harmonies. And I managed to get Persuade Neil to bring Tim back in mm. to do some backing vocals because they had the brother, yeah. you know, connection. Yeah, and then when we came to mix it with Bob Clear Mountain, Bob and Neil thought some of those outros, extended outros, were a bit indulgent or mm, something. That's too bad. Those are my I favorite parts them, of those two songs. Bit, I fought hard for them, man. I tell you, I really did. But at the end of the day, it's the artist's prerogative. They're in charge. Uh, but I did read, read an interview about 10 years ago where Neil said that the only thing he regretted with that with that album was cutting some of the outros. Oh man! And they did a big re-release, and he he put actually was great for me was that they put a lot of the demos up, mm -hmm. and that really illustrated just how much I brought to the party, how yeah. changed they were from when I finished with them. Yeah, yeah. There was one quote where it said there was a sort of sentimental, sleepy ballad, and you turned it into a sort of end of the world torch song. You know, nice. So you know those I. I was doing kind of challenging things for them, but they were, they were going with it pretty Good. much Good. most of the time. Yeah, they, uh, you know, they're special. I, I, I love them. About, I was on the Urban Hymns. Um, That's the next one. Four, four or five tracks where I do the same thing where the band go off on a tangent at the end. Mm. And it's, you, if you listen to Crown of the House and then Urban Hymns, you can really see the evolution of that production philosophy, really. I could hear, I could see that. And, uh, you know, my Urban Hymns is a top 30, top 20 favorite album of all time of mine. My favorite song on that album is Weeping Willow. I could see that because it's a little bit of a spacey psychedelic jam, but it's so yeah, powerful it's an and emotive. Jam, yeah. yeah. So I could see what you're saying that maybe that was 
that song is a product of that sort of way of thinking or approach to production. Yeah, but it's more on the things like Sonnet and uh, uh, Lucky Man, where that I'm I'm actually doing things I was actually working out with Crowded House before. But mm -hmm. then Neil got pissed off, and I saw some post from him once where there's a, there's a song of Crowded Houses. I don't think it's on that album, but the chords are the same as one of the other Verve songs. Oh, really? Yeah, and he was I'll like, have to listen to him back to back. He was saying, oh, you know, they've gone a bit close to the source reference. But ironically, I, I'm, I know for sure we never sourced or referenced that crowd at House Track. Mm -hmm. Richard had all the songs written before I came along. Yeah. But I might have subconsciously produced it in a more crowded house way Maybe. because it sounded familiar or something. I don't know. Yeah. I don't remember ever referencing or talking about it. But when you put them back to back, they do sound very similar. So, well, yeah. I, only similar in the sense that a lot of your stuff is similar. I don't mean similar. I mean that there's a there's an element of quality and a certain sound. Like there's, um, you know, you're going to hear some tablas. You're going to hear some beautiful darkness. I'm going to throw in uh, a few other references to to sort of support that point as we go along. But let's talk well, about the verb. Thanks. I'll take that. Yeah. Yeah. I've got I've got a whole list here. So two questions about urban hymns. Number one, you got to tell us the bittersweet symphony story. And number two, why did Richard and, and uh, Nick's relationship come apart? Okay, well, let's start there. Nick, I mean, Nick had I'd already left the band when I started urban hymns. Oh. Um, he came back in at the very end. Basically, we finished recording everything. He just did a few overdubs. I didn't realize. Okay. But there was a fair amount of friction between him and Richard. And fair to say that Nick had a, uh, his fair share of mental health issues, uh, as did Richard. Mm -hmm. You know, and there was a lot of clashes there. But I must admit, um, Nick's contribution was crucial. On Absolutely. The end. I mean, one of the great guitarists of his generation. You know, but again, it, it didn't last long live and they couldn't sustain it. And that's, that's a real shame because Richard's solo output has been underwhelming to say yep. the least agreed. without them. Yep, agreed. And I still don't think he's really found his feet without that band. I agree. Um, I saw them on that tour and uh, they were meant to play Red Rocks here in Denver. And so okay. a friend and I drive up to Red Rocks to see it and there's nobody there. And we hear rumors that it's been moved to a smaller venue, the Fillmore, actually. And we go, yeah. and Nick's not there. And it just, that, it's like, it's a little bit like Morrissey without Johnny Marr. They, they, yeah, there's yeah. this, there's a sound to the guitar that is so elemental to what the verb is all about. Yeah, you go back that. to Northern Soul. Yeah. You know? Well, Northern Soul and the albums preceding that were like space rock jam albums. True, really. true. Well, with only a couple of songs on them, really. Mm. So this was the first album that was going to be song-based. But it was at the very end that Richard started panicking and wanted to record some more jams mm. to make it more like the first two albums. He started freaking, well, we got too songy. But um, it's those five or six songs that make that album truly a classic album. I believe. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what's the bittersweet symphony what story? Great, what a voice. I oh, mean, it's, like and it's it. a shame that he's never been able to match it on his own solo. It what is. That album it they is. did when they came back together wasn't very good. 
the no, moment's it's gone. Yeah. It's too bad. Yeah. 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 So Bittersweet Symphony, what's the story there? Oh, the Bittersweet story, yeah, well, okay. So Richard had written Bittersweet to a, a sampled loop from Andrew Oldham's cover of The Last Time. Mm -hmm. But it put an entirely new lyric on and a fairly original melody, though the, the melody is actually the same. When we came to release it, my manager was in, by that time I got him in to manage the verb as well, because I didn't have a manager. He said, we've got a problem with this. I said, well, I can take the sample off. He goes, no, it's not the sample that's the problem, youth. It's the melody. Because the melody is the same music. If you go, it's a bittersweet symphony. Da -da 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 -da. And then uh, and maybe this is the last time. I, don't know. I mean, it's exactly the same. So he had a point, but... Actually, the grist of it was the copyright of the sample and the song. It meant that Richard had to give up all the publishing royalties on, on the songwriting, and they went entirely to Jagger Richards, which did seem harsh. Sure, there was an inspired borrowing of a melody, and, and he, you know, he wasn't avoiding it. He'd written the song around the sample. But there was enough original material there for him to warrant a, a, a credit. I mean, he, he, he gets a publishing credit now. Um, yeah. because now, now that there's no money to be made, they, they give it back to him. Well, I don't know. Still be a, he'll still make a bit. But, um, okay, good. But there weren't, it wasn't true that we didn't, we'd worked out a deal with Alan Klein and with Andrew Lou Goldham. So everybody got paid. And we got paid, I got paid royalties. The only thing they didn't get were publishing royalties, which Richard now gets, which is only fair and right, I think. Yeah. Um, 
but that was the uh, contentious issue. Really. Mm. If Richard had, if you, you guys, whoever had approached the Stones legal group ahead of time and said, this is what we're going to do. Do you want to work something out? Would they have been amenable to that? No, no. If we'd done that, the record would never have come out. Ah, uh, mm. okay. All right. Got it. Okay. So I guess you're lucky you got what you got, ultimately. Oh, yeah. I, I, I said to Richard, we, we were lucky we got away with that. Yeah. Because he's, they still made millions off the record, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they got a million or a few million of uh, just performing at once at the Super Bowl, you know. So True. he got he got weighed in in the okay. end. Okay. Okay. So that, that's fair, and you know, made him an international star, and everybody did well out of it. So Good. I mean, fair is fair. You know. Yeah. Okay. I, I'm quite experienced with samples because I've seen it both sides. You know, I've worked with the orb with the early orb and the orb were all entirely sample based mm -hmm. band. And, we wrote songs around other people's music and samples like the mm -hmm. Beastie Boys or something. And also, you know, I've, I've, I've been on the other side where I've had like Nirvana copy and almost practically sample Killing Joke riffs on a number of occasions. Mm -hmm. And we've not been given production royalties on that or, or, or publishing royalties. And I've, I've always cancelled with the band not to sue them either because politically and morally, I think artists should be allowed to do that and, and whatever they say now if you if the beastie boys were to make paul's boutique or the orb second album it, it would mm -hmm. cost about six million to clear all yeah. the samples yeah that's what so I mean. now when i'm making records with the orb I, i'm constantly referencing shazam because <laughs> if shazam picks it up i'm like we have to bury the bones a bit deeper boys and but it compromises the art of what we're doing yeah yeah. And, and it's compromised the art of hip-hop and sample-based music. Yeah. And I think there could have been a better way of it being resolved than the way it has. Because the way it has has just resulted people not doing it. Um, I agree. I mean, um, it's, not, it's no different than found art or Warholian, Warholian yeah, you know, know. making... A specific sample that's been used can be, you know, you can, they can work out a deal for it, but... Mm -hmm. The lawyers today, when they're working out a deal for a two-minute, two-second sample, mm -hmm. the companies don't even know they've got it. They don't know where it is. You have to do all the work. You have to send them a recording of the sample on its own, where it's from, in context with the record, how long it is. You know, they have to give them every bit of information. And they come back and say, okay, that's 20 grand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you end up just not doing it. Yeah. And it's, you know, but there's ways around it. I mean, a lot of it's that heavy now because you get a digital imprint on the record, but there's ways of recording the sample in analog, speed it up, slow it down, put a flanger on it. Mm -hmm. It makes it different, but it's so litigatory now. I mean, that Robin Thicke record was, you know, and the, the, that big uh, number one. With, lines. Um, well, that one, but also... The one that just sounded similar to Upside Sound My Head it was a different key, different chords. Mm. But they got they lost the case and ended up having to settle. Mm. Just because there was this close similarity. You used to be able to be inspired by something. Yeah. You know, look how many Beatle cover bands there were that sounded like the Beatles when the Beatles came up. Yeah. They were allowed to do that because they were inspired by it. And it used to be a very simple matter of 
you couldn't have five notes that were the same in the melody. And now as none of that, it's just whether it sounds similar or not, yeah. is enough for a legal case to be brought against it. And you're like, Jesus, you know, it's it's, a shame. Um, there's only seven notes, you know, right. <laughs> everything's going to be similar to everything else. Right. I don't know. It's kind of, it's almost goes in hand in hand with the sort of woke generation of mm-hmm. cultural appropriation, you know, which is almost getting to a point where they're saying, you know, white people shouldn't make black music or right. like black music, right. you know. Um, yeah, I'm not a fan of that. What, that's what inspiration is, you know, yeah, just because I, if I listen to Aretha, Day, Aretha Franklin or Earth, Wind and Fire and I want to get funky, I shouldn't be stopped from doing that. I'm not claiming to be black. I'm not claiming anything other than these people are great. I want to do something similar, you know? I think at the bottom line, if those people are getting paid that you've sampled, then that's good business, isn't it? I mean, there's nothing, uh, you know, I grew up in a multicultural society in West London in the seventies where we were encouraged to identify with whatever we liked, however we liked, and mm-hmm. make it our own. And, and now you, you've got a, a kind of liberal, woke voice that says you can't do that. It's crazy. Yeah. It's totally not liberal. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that's, that's the world we live in, isn't it? It's just yeah. crazy. You know. It is. Okay, let me ask you about another album you produced, and that's Seven from James. Mm. Um, I love James. I love that album. Sound and Born of Frustration are two of the greatest tunes ever. They're on my running playlist on my my iPod. What I've always wanted to know, my understanding is that James creates in the studio through a lot of jamming, just jam over and over in the, and the, that's my understanding. So the Tarzan bit in Born of Frustration, where did that come from? Was that your idea? Was it Tim jamming? Was it something else? Because it's, it's so powerful. Well, actually, weirdly, it was the other way around. I spent weeks rehearsing them. Oh. doing pre-production arrangements in Manchester before bringing them down to London and recording them in Olympic. 
and they'd had all the songs pretty much re written oh. and I actually had to push them to just jam to get some really? other ones and well more in line with what I wanted to do but yeah you know they were a classic indie band that indie dance band that had just had the big hit sit down and were about mm -hmm. to go huge arena big so they had a good budget and a great A&R man Alan Pell and I, I could pull in a great team so my recording engineer was Mark Spike Stent who's one of the top five mixers today. Yes, sir. And he was one of the big mixers then. Yeah. And I said, what do you want to record an album for? And he said, well, I've got ambitions to be a producer. I think it would be good to uh, sit in the studio with you and see how you do it. Because he only ever, I'd done a lot of mixing with him, but he never actually sat in a production with me. So I discovered him. He was tape-hopping on a KLF session. And he, the engineer hadn't come in. He'd done this incredible mix. And Jimmy was like, check this guy out. I was like, yeah, he's amazing. And I started booking him. Within a, a year or two, he was one of the top five mixers in London. And then he decided to try and do this production. It, it was difficult for him. I, I could tell it was a challenge for him because it's a whole different time process, engineering to mixing. And you've got to deal with the politics and social politics of the artist and the interpersonal politics within the band. And it's not just a matter of getting a good sound, you know. Yeah. And there were a lot of, you know, inter the band dynamics that were extreme and, and volatile with that. You, you think of James as being this kind of sleepy indie band, and they're all football hooligans and, uh -huh. <laughs> you know, the, the fiddle player turned an Olympic on the first day with a black eye, stumbled in the studio and I said, no way. what's happened to you? And he goes, that fucking cab driver. And I said, what happened? He, he had that altercation with the black cab driver outside and, and ended up spitting in the cab driver's face. The cab driver jumping out and beating shit out of him. And him holding his violin going, don't break my violin. And that was the first day. And we were rehearsing in Manchester. There were hoodlums and gangs coming in with baseball bags that would just come in on a van, run into a studio, grab as many amps and guitars as possible and run out. And there were all these running fights down the road. It was a great experience. So I was renting Tony Wilson's flat, who was the, uh, you know, the boss of Factory Records. Of course, yeah. He was sort of there being his apartment to me. And, uh, yeah, I really love Manchester. I love the vibe. Huh. And we had a great time. It was, you know, I did, we did do a lot of work on the arrangements. And he, he ended up doing five albums with them mm. um, because he loved that one so much. Um, but they did go much more back to an indie sound. But I think that album sounds incredible. I agree. Sure. And um, I think they're wrong. I think they just haven't managed to sort of get their heads around it, you know, because yeah. they do big stadium shows today as well. And those songs work fantastic. They sure know? do. They but sure the do. One of the best albums for sure. I agree. So wait, so tell me where the Tarzan sound from Born of Frustration came from. Was that them? They came into the studio with that? I can't remember, to huh. be honest. Okay, okay. What is that, guitar sound, or what do you mean? No, the Tarzan, sound? you know, at the beginning when he's, uh, he's sort of, Tim does that live, yeah. Yeah, he does. Uh, yeah, that's just Tim doing his thing, yeah. Okay, because those are the yeah, little sprinkles of pixie dust that I think make a song special and memorable, and I w always wonder where the ideas for those things come from. 
is that you who's like, Tim, you know what you might want to do is do a Tarzan yodel at the beginning, or does he think of that, or no, what? I don't, you know? think I, I don't think I instructed him to do it, but it could well have been an ad lib that okay. I've gone, oh, I really like that. Character. Yeah, okay. Okay, um, I got a couple more. I want to ask about Embrace. Yeah. I love oh, yeah. the band right. Embrace, and you yeah. produced yeah. Out of Nothing, which is a fantastic yeah. album, and it's got the song Someday. And just thinking about the song someday, I'm getting all goosebumpy because it is one of the most powerful, big, life-affirming anthems I've ever heard in my life. And I love it so much. Tell me what it was like working with Embrace. Wow. I mean, it was fabulous because they are very positive. Even yes. though they're all kind of grumpy northerners, <laughs> when it comes to the music, they're like super, everything has to be really positive and I really love that, and they're lovely guys as well. And they they had a lot of challenges to surmount, not least because they had an ambitious sound mm -hmm. and very melodic and song based. But also, Danny wasn't a very experienced singer, so mm. it was very hard for him to sing the songs. Mm. And they had to overcome that, and they managed to do it with three sheer strength of will and passion. And you can hear that in the in the record and. Uh, I love that whole thing of, you know, I got, I got that in punk, you know, like especially with the female punk bands, like the Slits and stuff. There's like these bands that couldn't really play very well, but they're trying really hard mm -hmm. to be really intentional and mm -hmm. intense. And you ca it came out sounding incredible, I thought. Yeah. I far prefer that to some accomplished virtuoso noodling on his guitar solo for 20 minutes. Agreed. So... You know, anything that's emotionally intense, I'm into. Anything that's sentimental and decorative, I'm not. Yeah. And with Danny and Embrace, it was really about getting to the emotional heart of the song and finding arrangements that, that really kind of added to that weight yeah. of emotion. And uh, they were a great band. I think uh, 
Now, on some of those sessions, were, were the sessions I'd done the most vocal takes. On a couple of tracks, I'd actually done over 200 vocal takes. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. And I'd do them in batches of 25, <laughs> comp them down to one, and then we go, let's do it again on another day. And, and I did that four or five times and then ended up with five or six comped tracks out of 250 takes uh-huh. and then comp the final lead out of those five. Wow. Insane. Wow. Absolutely yes. insane. Insane. It really needed a lot of uh, patience. I had an amazing programmer on that session. It was, it was uh, an incredible producer, Gareth Jones, worked with um, Depeche Mode and a lot of people. And again, I'd asked him, why did you, why do you want to go back to being a tape hop and work with me? And he goes, because... I want to see what you do on a production. And, really? Uh, you know, I was lucky like that. I'd had a, a few admirers who were accomplished producers who were happy to step down wow. so they could spend the time in the room with me and see how I approached it. Wow. And they wow. were, and he was absolutely, you know, priceless on that session. You know, he was so calm. He was so patient, diligent. And, yeah. just, you know, jeez. That's amazing. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, great. Yeah, good. And they I think were Embrace is special. Band. Yeah, and they were the first band I recorded in the studio here in Spain at Space Mountain, 2005. Really? Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, they weren't confident about it. And we ended up recording, uh, we did about a 10-day session here, recorded about seven, eight songs. And then we went back to London and they said, we want to try and record two of these songs in Britannia Row and Olympic, they both had different drum sounds. And we want to be sure that the drum sound we've got in Spain's the best. So I was like, are you sure? And they were like, yeah, yeah, we were prepared to pay the money. And we did it, and they weren't as good. Oh, and wow. And so that gave me a lot of confidence in the studio here because we really had gone the extra mile. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it's great. And, and whenever I see Danny, it's really nice. I mean, still in touch with Mikey, Mickey Clark. And, yeah, uh, good. And, uh, I had uh, Steve Firth, the bass player, on here. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I saw them on that tour and at a little club. It was like a bar here in Denver. And there were uh, maybe 40 people there. Nothing against them, but their sound is tailor-made for the biggest stadiums there are. And to hear well, these gigantic atoms, yeah. yeah, they're not that, they're not, they've never gotten a stronghold yeah. here. So to hear these giant anthems in this little bar with only 30 or 40 people there was a real, yeah, it was different. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, one more. Weird enough, Tim, oh. Tim was very into uh, a friend of mine, called Gabrielle Roth, who started the Five Rhythm Movement, mm. which is this sort of new age movement of dance. You dance through different emotions, and Tim's like totally mm. obsessed with it. I could and see I that. ended up doing some music with her in New York for songs that she'd recorded to do with the dance uh, therapy. Really? She's dead. She'd been dead 10 years, but she was an amazing cat. Wow. Oh, that's yeah. fascinating. You and your dance music, I can't even keep up. I mean, I've cherry-picked a couple of things to ask you about, but there's so much. That's its own separate yeah. conversation. Um, okay, one more album I want to ask you about, and uh, it's Echo and the Bunnymen's Meteorites. 
And I, I am about to say something quite controversial. That's my favorite Echo and the Bunnymen album. Wow, More, that's great. Well, the, few of the fans really love it. Good. Um, More even than the classic periods, because there are, like, Ocean Rain is great, but there's a couple of kind of clunkers on there, and Meteorites, to me, is so wow. solid through and through. And He's my such a great writer. He He's is. such a great writer. And Will is I mean, maybe the most underappreciated... Yes. Next to Richard Ashcroft, he's one of the best singers I've ever worked with, I think. Good. Now, my um, favorite song on that album is Market Town. Come on down to Market Town. Come on down to Market. Come and watch the sun go down. Come and watch the darkness. Come on down to Market. Come on down to Market. Come and ride the rag around. And it's like this eight yeah. minute again. So I can hear you on there. And I want to know the story of yeah, Market yeah. Town because it sounds like something you would do. Well, those, he had many of those written before as demos. And I'd maybe sample up a de a de the demo a bit and then build a new track around it. But he was funny. He's been like doing the Mary Chain. Neither of them wanted drummers, you know, mm. like. Ian was like, Echo in Echo and the Bunnymum is our drum machine. That's all we fucking need. <laughs> and um, and I, Mary Chain were like, we prefer we prefer little drum machines to drums. <laughs> I'm like, you you're you're an arena rock group. How are you going to fill an arena with a little drum set? Mind you, fine, weirdly enough, on the Mary Chain album, we did end up taking a lot of the real drums off and it still sounds fucking amazing. Mm -hmm. So sometimes they're right and I'm wrong, you know, often. With the Bunnyman, yeah, he, you know, we, we, he was right as well sometimes. And, uh, but he, he just, he's a weird juxtaposition, Ian, because he's this amazing poet. He's like Shelley. But in real life, he's a real football bloke. And uh -huh. all, he, all he's into is football and crosswords. And, um, you know, it was hard to sort of marry the two. Uh -huh. And he'd take forever with his lyrics. It would be like, we'd do a five-hour session and he'd get two words, you know. <laughs> I, I literally had to be incredibly patient over a year and a half, you know. Uh -huh. But by then, I was already recording mainly at home. And so I wasn't under a 10-hour day in a studio a thousand pound a day restrictions. I sure. could be patient and I could record the tracks right back to where they were. 
Uh-huh. And so it was worth it in the end because I, it was a it was a great experience working with them. I learned a lot. Good, good. I love them, and I love that album, and it's got your fingerprints on it, which is probably why I love it so much. I have more that I want to get into, but I'm going to take a a slight uh, turn here. We have some Patreon members, and uh, I told them, I always tell them who I'm interviewing, and they can submit some questions. And one of them in particular was how you approach remixing which is obviously something you're pretty much equally as famous for and i'm curious about that too and in particular you don't have to necessarily talk about this one but as an example i was thinking of for instance u2's night and day Because I think that song is, uh, first of all, not that many people know about it. And anyone who's wondering how the band went from Joshua Tree to Octung Baby, I feel like Night and Day is the conduit. That's the bridge that shows where these guys' head were going. And you remixed that. Yeah, well, Night and Day was actually a production. Really? Because they hadn't finished recording it by the time I went over to remix it. Really? Even though they said, oh, can you remix this track? So I went, I, I, I joined them for a few days before and they were just doing some writing sessions and they were working on night and day with a, a local producer and he was building up the string arrangement. And they were at the same time, I think they were just starting at Action Baby and they had Danny and Eno wasn't there, but Danny was. Mm-hmm. And I actually asked Danny to do the tambourine on it because... He was better at tambourine than the drummer, apparently. <laughs> it's quite hard to play tambourine sometimes, like yeah. Ty. And he did it beautifully. And I'm a big admirer of his productions as well. But that's, yeah, then once we 
finished recording because then I'd get Bono in to do some other bits. I'd get Edge in to do some uh, extra guitars and, you know, so I produced it up a bit. But then I kind of, once, we, once I'd had everything on there, I kind of forgot about it being production and then approached it as a remixer. Mm. And then I started putting on breaks and building beats and rearranging it. And, and uh, you know, and that was, yeah, I really enjoyed it and they were really good fun to work with. But really, the, to answer the question, the, the great fun I have with, with remixes is, is kind of like I, I approach it like, Growing up in the 70s as a teenager with Jamaican dub, with King Tubby and Lee Perry, I loved the way they would deconstruct a familiar song, a hit they'd had, and they'd do 15 different versions of it with different singers, different musicians, and re rebuild it from nothing and completely reinvent it around that rhythm. And I used to find that fascinating, and so... For me, doing a remix was like, oh, great, I can do that. You know, so I basically, sometimes at random, pull out some various CDs out of my collection, Steve Wright, John Cage, avant-garde stuff, and go, well, let's, let's put John Cage next to Bootsy Collins, next to James Brown. Or, I just do these extreme juxtaposed things mm-hmm. and put them together. Mm-hmm. And then, and then also trying to navigate around the current dance floor hit, mm-hmm. and so something that will work on a DJ set with with certain records that were happening at that time, and uh, that was always great fun because mm-hmm. you were allowed to. It was a great learning experience because I could really reverse engineer how they got to the produced finished sound by going right. through the Molly tracks. Yeah. And then I was allowed to completely rewrite it and reinterpret it completely on how I felt, you know. Yeah. Luckily, they were successful. I kept getting yeah. asked to do more. So. <laughs> but they were pioneering days. and Not everybody got them. But I mean, I listen back to some of them now. They sound great. So yeah. I'm like, yeah. well, I'm they do. One other, uh, I don't think I knew that you produced this until I got ready to talk to you. I moved to Cambridge, England in 1991, right after I graduated from high school. And we lived there for almost a year. And one of the bit, well, first of all, the huge hit the whole time I was there was Brian Adams, Everything I Do, I Do For You. And there are all these songs that were kind of trying to take it out of number one, like Set Adrift on Memory, Bliss, Prince's an Cream. incredible production. Trevor Horn produced that, didn't he? Yes. And uh, one, one of the songs... It is an incredible production. He, it, uh, Even if Trevor, you hate the song, the production is like, wow. <laughs> it's amazing. Trevor yeah. is a genius. But one of the songs mm. that was really big at that time was Sunshine on a Rainy Day by Zoe.
I believe you oh, yeah. produced that, and I didn't know that. But when I was listening, and it, that's never been heard of yeah. in the States. No one knows what that is. Well, it wasn't a hit in the States, you're right. She was my girlfriend, ended up my first wife, actually. Really? I didn't yeah. know that. And we co-wrote that together when we were really in love. She was 19, I was like 26. Oh, really young. Yeah. Wow. And uh, weirdly enough, I wasn't sure about it. And we just finished writing it on this really hot summer's Saturday afternoon. I was walking back to my flat with an acoustic guitar on my shoulder with Zoe. And I saw Andrew Weatherall come by because he was my neighbor. He lived upstairs and I lived downstairs <laughs> with Alex Patterson. Okay. And I said, Andrew, come in. I've just written this song with Zoe. I'm not sure. I'd like to get your opinion of it, you know. Uh -huh. He said, yeah, all right. And he came in and I played it to him off this cassette. And he goes, oh, summer anthem, fucking great. I said, would you <laughs> remix? He goes, love to. And he remixed the, one of the original versions and made it a hit in the clubs. Yes. Um, so, I mean, there was a nice story around that. And I had no idea. Today, it's still an interesting story. Um, last week I was in London working on uh, an album for Bricks from The Fall. Mm. Mm -hmm. And one of my assistants in London is Zoe's son from her second marriage with this English poet called Murray Luckin Young. Bricks had been going out with Murray before he met Zoe. And I'd been married to Zoe before he, she'd met Murray. Oh and her son had to work with both of, her, both of his parents' exes on the same session. <laughs> no way. Okay, let's see. Boy, there's so many things. Let's talk about, uh, well, first of all, let's talk about Killing Joke. I mean, we didn't even, you know, that's what started this whole thing. I, uh, as I mentioned, you guys came through town, I think it was last year on your 40th anniversary. I saw you here at the Oriental. It was one of the loudest, heaviest concerts I've ever been to. And I remember thinking it kicked off with Love Like Blood. You played that first. And I thought, wow, that's ballsy, playing one of your biggest hits first. And I realized why, because that was going to be the last of anything sort of melodic, basically, for the rest of the night. It was going to be heavy. Other than 80s, the song 80s, it was a lot of the heavier, doomier stuff. Yeah, And I was so glad that I finally got to see you guys. So tell me about leaving Killing Joke. Why, first of all, why, how did you guys even stumble on that sound? And secondly, why did you feel like you needed to leave? Oh, well, that is a long story. But let me talk about Love Like Blood and that show because it's very hard for me to get jazz and Paul often to do the bigger pop hits like really? 80s Love Like Blood. Yeah, they want to do the heavy, dark ones. And I'm like, no, you know, the kids haven't seen us before, never seen us. They want their there to hear Love Like Blood, you know. Yeah. So a compromise of that was like, I said, let's do a James Brown thing where we open with our biggest hit. <laughs> and then we can go anywhere you like. Yeah. And Jazz was like, yeah, all right, let's do that. So there are often times where he just won't do it and we don't do it. But... Oh. uh that's the story behind that. Um, but yeah, I don't know with Killing Joke. I mean, we, we're four alpha males mm -hmm. who are very stubborn. Mm -hmm. um, and part of the magic of Killing Joke is those extreme juxtaposed opposites. Mm -hmm. And that's something I've always tried to 
to do in my other productions uh, try and do things wrong mm. things you'd never do with that band because that's going to be more interesting than just doing what they've done before and killing joke it's easy to do that because we're all so different and we'll push and pull in other ways there's no democracy mm. it's it's a survival of the angriest and most passionate arguments mm -hmm. that will push something through yeah it's a weird one and uh, but that's essentially what it is okay it's things that shouldn't go together being thrust together yeah. and because of that there's a chemical reaction that creates another element that makes it great yeah you know? yeah I mean, it seems like since you've been back, I mean, I don't know, were you just doing a 40th anniversary tour or do you, uh, obviously COVID has yeah. ruined everything, but do you plan to stick with at least touring with Killing Joke? Or are you done with that for a while or where do you stand? Yeah, none, of us want, none of us want to tour too heavily. Doing three months with Tool last year really was a challenge. Mm. I don't think any of us want to do that in a hurry, especially after COVID, you know. Yeah. But we've got shows planned next year with uh, Vampire Millionaires, uh, Johnny mm. Depp, and oh Alice yeah, Vamp and, uh, yeah, Hollywood Vampires, uh, Hollywood Vampires. That's it. So yeah, yeah, and we we've got a, a few arena shows with them. So um, we'll we'll certainly be touring. I mean, the band, you know, it's it's the DNA of the band is doing gigs. So yeah, we'll yeah. be doing that thing. One of the other one thing that I found in getting ready to talk to you that I wasn't familiar with was 4B2. Only one 4B2 of the lads. Yeah, yeah. yeah, what is that? This is John well, Lydon's brother, Jimmy? I didn't even know about yeah. this. Well, Vivian Goldman, the esteemed journalist, describes that as the first post-punk proto-world dub anthem. <laughs> Actually hit the charts in England when it came out. It sort of got to number 32 in the singles charts. Oh. And it's a great record. Um, and it kind of just preceded public image. I got the gig because I looked like Sid Vicious and it was Jimmy's brother. And the manager, Jock, had done a deal with Ireland saying I was, it was Jimmy's brother, J John Lydon's brother and Sid Vicious's brother's group. Uh-huh. Which was a scam, but it, it did get us a deal and we made a few records and they were hits. Uh, wild. But it wasn't a real band. You know, it was a bunch of guys having a go, basically. But it yeah. was 
it was my first record and that record was a hit and, i had no uh, idea yeah i'm very grateful to them now for, yeah yeah that was a lot of fun so when you left killing joke yeah. yeah when you left killing joke and you started brilliant i mean I can't think of anything less like Killing Joke than Brilliant. involved in brilliant my understanding i mean they go on to the klf i had ben watkins on here from juno reactor yeah, yeah, a few years yeah, ago and yeah. he's no, in there somewhere yeah. yeah yeah why did brilliant cool. feel like the next thing to do well i didn't leave killing joke oh you know jazz left killing joke to go to iceland and then geordie left mm. to follow him and then paul left and i was mm. the last man standing <laughs> And then they came back a few weeks later saying, oh, we don't want to do that. We're going to go on tour in Germany again. I'd already had a big LST meltdown and I felt kind of betrayed by that. And I, I thought our third album was a real dirge and I wasn't really interested. Didn't really have the spunk in me to fight them to make that next album. If I'd known they were going to do Love Like Blood on the next album, I wouldn't have left. Right. <laughs> but uh, but uh -huh. I thought it was going to be this dirgy, dreggy thing. And actually what I wanted to do was more challenging. I wanted to sort of develop and pioneer what's become known as indie dance, mm -hmm. which Killing Joe were also responsible for. We, we used a lot of disco rhythms like change, things that were later on sampled or copied by LCD sound system and things mm -hmm. like that. And I wanted to go further with that punk funk, post-punk aesthetic. Yeah. And um, Brilliant became this perfect vehicle for that because I ended up having two drummers and two basses, about eight people in the band. Yeah. And we did all right. And we were playing to sort of heavy goth punk crowds, but they really? all kind of got it. But we never made a single that broke through. Then we signed to Warners and broke the band down to a three-piece. Bill Drummond from the KLF is then our manager. And the whole thing was like... We tried to make a big pop record and we went in with PWL, which was one of the most important experiences in my life because that's where I really learned how to produce. Mm -hmm. But that album came out very compromised and wasn't mm -hmm. a hit. Mm -hmm. And it was very much their sound. And band had to split up as a result. But it really catapulted me into production. Yeah. yeah. And that production, in the end, proved very valuable to Killing Joke when I rejoined in 89, 90, and we did um, Pandemonium. Yeah. 
and throughout and everything since. Yeah. Yeah, it's just part of the journey now. I can't think of it without it. Ha I can't think. If I had stayed in Killing Joke, I wouldn't be sitting in the studio now. I wouldn't have produced Crowded House or something. But I'd just be a bass player in a band, probably battling with drugs and alcoholism. <laughs> um, so it was incredibly important that I left that band at the time. Yeah. My I think I read in an interview somewhere that you did that Stock Aikman and Waterman, again, another... This there seems to be, a theme seems to be coming out of this youth where you and something completely different make beautiful music together, whether it's Crowded House or Dr. Robert or yeah. Stock Aikman Waterman. And I read somewhere, I think you were saying what a massive influence those guys were to you, even though Stock Aikman Waterman and Killing Joke couldn't be further away from each other. It's true, they were both two ends of the spectrum, but. I've never been a pop snob. I've always loved great pop music. Yeah. And they were really great pop producers, very successful. But they did make banal, cheesy music, which I didn't want to make. So there's a lot of battles. I almost got sacked from the band in the middle of that album um, for complaining about um, Mike. He was writing, co-writing some of the songs and some of the lyrics were just too cheesy. Mm. But I won that battle but we, we yeah i mean it was a fa it was a fascinating experience and um certainly one of the best records they ever made not but the probably the least successful commercially mm. but um yeah it was very formative for me as a producer yeah they were they were revelationary they were and i think i i think in the article i read a it what really inspired you was sort of a commitment to the work, to the focus, to following the sound, these things really influenced you. Yeah, 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 in incredible. You know, they were like, they were actually very talented musicians. Matt Aching, I remember having a bet with him, and he said, I bet you a fiver, you can name any Ze five Zeppelin songs, I'll be able to play them on the guitar. And I'm a big Zeppelin fan. Mm -hmm. So I picked five obscure Lebs zeppelin songs and he he played them all wow and very well you know so yeah. i was like now he knows his chops <laughs> but 
they were just really focused, yeah. And they weren't afraid of, uh, of uh, borrowing or, t or taking, stealing stuff. You know, Pete would come in in the morning with a load of 12-inch imports from New York. And he'd go, that's the baseline. Those are the chords. They're right at the top line around that. And that was it. And then wow. by the end of the day, we'd have a finished song. We're wow. mixed and recorded. And me and Jimmy would be like, bloody. And so that, I, we took that further with KLF, Copyright Liberation, they, but they were like, let's start making records. And let's not just copy the bass lines of these imports. Let's sample them and make records out of other people's records. And then we, you know, I took that further with the orb, where some of those tracks are entirely composed of other people's samples. Yeah. And it became this postmodern thing. And it was sample culture, really. And yeah. uh, I think some, some incredible music came out of that time. Actually, KLF's legacy isn't that great. Um, certainly their albums aren't that good, except for the Chill Out album, which is an absolute stone-cold masterpiece, classic still today. Yes. Yeah. And that's still got samples on it that have never been cleared. It's got Elvis <laughs> in the ghetto on it. It's got Fleetwood Mac on Albatross <laughs> on it. Those, those have never been cleared, and they're oh, still that's... on sale. That's Jimmy says his heart rate goes up every time he goes past a record shop <laughs> and he sees it. I bet. But it's a beautiful album. I mean, it's yeah. up there with Dark Side of the Moon. I think it's incredible. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk um, about the orb, um, especially Little Fluffy Clouds. Like I said, I lived in England in 91. That was right around that time when Little Fluffy yeah. Clouds and artists like Two Unlimited and The Shaman and that kind of stuff was really hot right then. You talk about sample culture. Is that what sparked doing and starting the orb is just getting as creative with samples as you could possibly get? That meets meets a sort of a Lee Perry, King Tubby dub sensibility, oh, yeah. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Yeah, I mean, me and Alex were going to New York a lot from 79. 
touring with Killing Joke. I was DJing in New York in 83, 84. Really? I didn't in the know 90s, I had a residency at the Tunnel and Twilo. I've always had a good love affair with New York. and lo- New York's always been very, very warm reception for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, both me and Alex were blown away at the uh, hip-hop culture that was emerging. Not just with the music, but the art. Keith Haring, Basquiat. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember seeing Basquiat shadows of Samo on in the alleyways and being blown away. Wow! And the music um, and and the sources of information that and and the collage culture of all this amazing music condensed down to a beat. And I mean, Alex used to tape WBLS and KTU and Kiss FM master mix, Shep Pettibone master mixes. How those guys would remix a record live on air. Yeah, they might take a, like a, a little indie band like the Human League <laughs> and kind of remix Don't You Want Me Baby with all these hip-hop beats and stuff live. And it was another sort of level of dub, I thought. It was another complete reconstruction, deconstruction, uh, postmodern collage. I don't know. It just, it, it was some of the best music I'd ever heard. And it was still very undiscovered in England. And me and Alex just absorbed ourselves in it and right. bought and collected the records. And we, 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 we would swap the mixtapes with other people who were doing the same thing in London. And we try and copy them, you know, when we got back to England, you know, yeah. and <laughs> let's go, let's do that. But meets Trevor Horn or something. We do things like that. And, I've still got some of those cassettes. I mean, Alex still listens to them. And I'm like, wow. And finally enough, the other day I just bought um, the new Tarantino Once Upon a Time in Hollywood oh. soundtrack on Vine. Mm-hmm. And I like the way he puts his soundtracks together. And he does a similar thing. He's, he, he sort of cuts in these sort of original 60s radio ads for donuts or makeup or something banal. Right. in between the tracks with a little yeah. bit of dialogue from the movie and stuff. Yeah. It actually sounds like an old record. <laughs> it does. <laughs> because that's what we were kind of doing <laughs> with, uh, with the hip-hop culture, you know, yeah. at the time. And I think I was um, a pioneer in that. I was, this is what people tell me now, that I was a bit gen- genreless, genre-blind. Mm. I could see that. Because yes. I come from punk. I've gone through brilliant... I did. I was. I was doing indie dance. I was doing remixes. I was producing multi genres. Mm-hmm. And at that time, it was very rare to find a producer doing that or an artist. Um, mm-hmm. You were very much more stay in your lane. And yeah. You're a rock guy. Just do rock, you know. And the world now, because of the internet, has come more towards me than mm-hmm. I've had to go towards it. Sure. In that, everybody now is into everything. Yeah. It's true. And especially remix culture, mm-hmm. you know. And that, I think, has done me a lot of... Uh, that. That's really given me a, a, a head start and, and enabled me to get some kudos for being a pioneer mm-hmm. of that. Yeah, um, you deserve it. Um, I'm curious, is yeah. there somebody you haven't worked with that you would like to work with that you think you could really oh, elevate? There's, yeah, there's dozens, you know. I uh, bet. I'd love to work with Bob Dylan. I'd love to work with Alison Krauss. We have to talk. Let's talk about the fireman. Um, my understanding okay. is that this project came together because you were going to be 
remixing songs off of the off the ground album, I think, and he liked it. Yeah, and so he you're right. To work with you, what's the story? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, Paul rang me up. My manager rang me. I said, "Keep your phone on. You're gonna have Paul McCartney ring you soon." I was like, "All right." I said, "What about?" He said, "He said I think he wants you to do a remix." I said, "Okay." So Paul rang up. Said, "Would you be up for coming down to my studio and re-picking one of the tracks and remixing it?" Mm-hmm. And he had Paul Oakenfold remixing one, and I was like, "Yeah, sure, I'd love to." So. I went down there and listened to some of the tracks and I was like, I spoke to him and I said, you know what would be more interesting is, um, you know, if I just took a load of different sounds off different tracks and then turned that into a new track mm-hmm. rather than just remixing one of them because no mm-hmm. one's ever done that before. Mm-hmm. And he went, his eyes lit up, he goes, oh, that's good. Yeah, do that. Because I think he, the Beatles were quite known for doing things that people hadn't done before. Sure. Whether it was with the sleeves or the music, you know, that was a big thing. So, he, you know, I learned pretty quickly that anything that hadn't been done was a good way to go. And so as we got into that, it became more of an original album. And that one track, I did a lot of different mixes and he stayed up all night with the family watching me make them. And then he was like... I want to turn this into a into a band, and I want to turn this these mixes into a an album. And I I said, well, you know, the way I mix, part of my process is I'll do you know four or five ambient mixes, four or five beat mixes, four or five radio mixes, and then I'll take a moment and then I'll sort of edit them all together into one mix. Uh-huh. He goes, yeah, but I don't want you to do that because I love them all. I want to put them all out as an album. So I was like. Okay, and he goes, and, uh, and it's going to be a band, and it's me and you, rather than Paul McCartney. I said, great, you know. I mean, it doesn't happen every day, Paul McCartney asks right. you to be in a band. So yeah. I was like, cool. And, uh, and that he wanted to do it kind of secretly, I thought, was a bit of a poison chalice, because I thought, well, that's cool, but then it's, nobody's going to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> and it was an obscure album, the first one, but it did develop our relationship and working, and we ended up doing another two.
Yeah. And we tend to do one every 10 years. So we're due one soon, I think. Good. But it's always been an incredible experience working with Paul. But, you know, equally, I'd, I'd love to um, work with Ringo. I'd, mm. I'd love to work with George. I'd love to work with the Stones. There's so mm. many artists I'd still love to work with. I bet. Um, but I'm eternally grateful um, for these artists uh, allowing me into their private sessions and, and, and allowing me to produce them and direct them. You know, I mean, I, you couldn't dream something like that. Right. When I was a kid, I got listening to those records growing up and then finding myself in the studio with the same artist. I used to, you know, play along with a broomstick, you know, like air guitar with Alex Patterson at school. We used to do that for hours and hours to Zeppelin, Floyd Beatles. And to think that then that we would then end up in the room with them, making yeah. their, helping them make their records. Crazy. Unbelievably mind-blowing. I believe But it. that is the wonderful thing about life and and the process of life. And I'm a, a big advocate of um, of being positive in the studio, despite the challenges, despite what's going on in your personal life. Yeah. And if you can stay positive and ride that tiger, yeah. you can become part of that mythology, you know, and it's, it's a quest, you know, it's epic. Yeah. It's every everything a schoolboy could ever dream of right. in terms of a fulfilled life, you know? So I'm internally grateful for it and, and, and incredibly humble about my own, I hope, my own contribution to it. I'm just a lucky guy who yeah. happened to be in the right place at the right time well, on a number of occasions. Yeah, I was going to say with you an know, incredible ear and impeccable taste. Well, that's great. That's for somebody else to say, but... The crowning jewel of all of that work for me has been Pink Floyd. And I'd go to David, 
How about doing a, a solo like Peter Green? And you go, oh yeah, I love Peter Green. And so we get a really rich, warm, Les Paul tone. And then I go, what about Hank Marvin, twang? <laughs> oh yeah, I love Hank. I said, do, do you know any of his riffs? He goes, do I know any of his? Pick out a guitar and he played like 20 minutes of Hank, Hank's riffs, you know. <laughs> so, you know, being able to have that talent as part of your color palette on your yeah. palette to paint a picture with, mm -hmm. It's just unbelievable, isn't it? I just think it's yeah. incredible. Kind of like being a film director, I suppose. But um, yeah, I yeah. love it. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, I mean, I, there's a hundred other things I could ask you about, but I, uh, I just want to say I'm so grateful because so much of the music that makes up just the core of my taste and what I think is good and what moves me has, come, has passed through your hands. And so thank you for well, all the good you've put in the world because it has greatly, greatly impacted my life for the better. So thank you. Well, that's very kind of you to say thank you. And uh, glad to hear it. Um, yeah, yeah, that's what it's, uh, that's what all, it's all about. And all of it. It's been great talking to you. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. And thanks for your patience and help waiting to get it together it's so okay. we can do it. It's okay. And it thanks for the support so much to me. as well. Absolutely. And supporting the, the Dr. Robert single and, uh, yeah. and giving a positive encouragement. Really, really great. All right, there you have it, youth. I could have talked to him forever. We were having technical issues, which all got cut out, so you don't know it. But anyway, I could have just gone and gone and gone. There were so many things I wanted to ask him about. I want to close it out with a little more Fireman. There were so many things we could have picked, but we didn't get to talk about the Fireman enough. So this is Is This Love off of the third Fireman album, Electric Arguments. Anyway, huge fan. I love youth so much. Now, next week, I'm not entirely sure what I'm going to go with. I haven't decided yet. I have so many things in the can. Some are time sensitive. Some have been sitting around for a while. So I'm not exactly sure. But um, they're all good. So you're going to enjoy it no matter what it is. And then later this week, we should have one or two bonus episodes. We have a tribute to Eddie Van Halen. And we have a promo mode coming out. So anyway, that should be it coming out later this week. Huge thanks, as always, to Jan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man. Thank you, buddy, for everything that you do. Please sign up on our Patreon page if you want, folks. There's two tiers on there. Uh, the easy one is $2 a month. You can win any swag we get. And the second one is $5 a month. And I'll tell you who I'm interviewing, and you can submit questions if you want. And uh, that should be it, okay? Oh, you know how to find us on Facebook and like our page, send us a message, send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. Thanks, everybody. We love you. We'll talk to you next week.
Christmas.